because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. Your host, Alex Epstein, is not here. Sitting in for him today is Dom Watkins in Pennsylvania and Stefan Henna in Germany. Hey, Stefan, how's it going? Hey, Dom. All right. Alex will be back next week, but we will jump in this week with some of the most interesting energy stories uh, of the week. So I actually, though, want to start. So we just had a Memorial Day weekend here, and I spent a lot of time reading about the Green Movement and books on its history and some writings, particularly by the early pioneers, as well as some more recent writers. And one of the things that I kept noticing was the way that they would describe production. Anytime that they were talking about human beings producing, it was always treated as this mindless, short rage, essentially destructive activity. And so here's just a few examples pulled basically at random from a fear screen fire by an environmentalist journalist, Philip Shabekoff. So on page 54, he says, for most of the 19th century, the ebullient young country was still not ready to take a sober look at the environmental consequences of its long binge on expansion and development. On page 55, the government in Washington was by the 1870s starting to exhibit some concern over the consequences of unthinking land use and resource exploitation. On page six, American was a virgin land, a land to be admired, even loved, but to be deflowered forcibly when necessary to satisfy the passions that drove men westward. So the settlers were raping a continent. On page 51, talks about how heedless destruction of nature can have adverse consequences for humans. And on page 69, that environmentalism was the realization that the freewheeling anything goes approach to land and resources that had spurred the uh, building of a new nation was no longer acceptable. On page 60, it tells us that conservation holds that people have not only the right, but the duty to control the use of the natural resources, which are the great sources of prosperity. And it regards the absorption of these resources by special interests, unless their operations are under effective public control as a moral wrong. So there's, and this is throughout the, the, Anytime you're actually describing development or industry, the there really is no such thing as production, if that means the intelligent transforming of the earth to create the values that we need to flourish. It's effectively treated almost as overconsumption of, quote, as they put it, nature's bounty. And like if that really were the model for how the world works, then yeah, I mean, it's unsustainable if you're just consuming things at a pace faster than they can be replenished by nature and it would lead to ultimate catastrophe and to the extent people that like buy into this way of thinking it's very plausible that we need you know green elites to rein in our short-range mindless impulses and part of what was interesting to me about this is that it's wider than environmentalism so before i came to the center for industrial progress with alex i was writing on the more broad attacks on capitalism and business and this same sort of attitude towards production that it's just this mindless short range activity really is widespread on almost every issue. And I think one of the deep roots of it philosophically is what's known as the soul body dichotomy, which is this idea that there's not just one natural universe, but there's two worlds where you have this higher spiritual world and then the lower material world. And so like Plato 
would say that you know the people at the bottom of society are the people who produce the material good material goods, and then at the top you have these philosopher kings concerned with the the higher, more real reality of ideas or the spirit. And today, the one way that this shows up politically is just this idea that capitalism is immoral because it's failing to constrain the short range destructive impulses of materialism. So we need this mystical elite to control us, only it's not the church. It's just these people who somehow have like higher forms of knowledge and are of higher moral stature because they're not, quote, greedy. And one way that uh, it's useful to think about the truth, I think, is that what capitalism is, it's the system that constrains the power lust of authoritarians and people who want to use physical force more broadly in order to allow for intelligent transformation. And often you get like people use terms like unrestricted capitalism. I think Bill McKibben has a bunch of this kind of terminology in his latest book. And their goal is to evoke fear, like, oh man, unrestrained, unrestricted, that sounds really dangerous. But really the alternative is unrestricted coercion. And so what capitalism liberates is not this kind of mindless short-range pursuit of exploitation and overconsumption, but human creativity and production. And that's what we'll often call intelligent transformation, which is not to say that there's not cases of unintelligent transformation, but intelligent transformation is the dominant phenomenon, which is why in the moral case for fossil fuels, we get all these, we get these hockey stick graphs, not the Michael Mann kind of showing catastrophe, but uh, hockey stick graphs showing that there's basically no human progress for eons. And then with the industrial revolution, like every aspect of life, including environmental quality is getting better. And the, the, it's precisely because in general, what's going on is that we're thinking about how to produce in a way that's actually beneficial in a way that is long-term creating values for people. And for environmentalists though, they either, they deny this idea that we can intelligently transform things as free individuals and like their only model, the only way that they'll even allow that we can intelligently transform things is if you have authoritarian central planners whose contribution is basically to stop us from producing too much or in a way that's not green. So um, the the thing that I think is, I mean, one takeaway here is just how subtle the bias is in that it's not that they just make this outright argument. It's just in all of the kind of phrasing that shows up in their work. It shows up in the way the media describes things and that like it's you you just have to have a very sensitive antenna towards those things i think in order to capture how much the issue is being framed at this very deep level in a very i think wrong way Stefan, i'm curious like you've read a lot of this stuff it, it, i'm curious if you have any reactions to that i find it remarkable how widespread this general thinking is and ultimately this Malthusian view of, you know, humans gobbling up the resources and destroying themselves by doing so uh, is, you know, in, in every field, certainly in, in climatology, we've seen that. And in energy, we see that. And it's actually pouring into concrete policies in the sense that, for example, many of the policy goals for, you know, the energy field as envisioned by politicians by 2030 or 2050 is, you know, live with less, not, you know, strive to create more, 
but live with less, you know, be energy efficient, save some energy, not use like 10 times more energy to create, but, you know, consume less, use less, do the same with fewer resources and so on. So very, very timid goals. And just one example that I always uh, see why this is incorrect, the incorrect view of what resources are and how resources are produced and which sort of debunks the whole Methuselian uh, anti-productivity view is look at the oceans versus agricultural land. So with agricultural land, what we have done is we've taken a patch of usually forest and deforested it and totally transformed it into something that produces on a relatively small amount of land, enormous amounts of food today. We've really sort of perfected that land for our use. And that created like many times over the resources that the original forest would provide for human life. And so we actually created more resources. We didn't, you know, just sort of destroy this patch of forest. We did some, we perfected it or sort of transformed it into something much better and something that produces more resources. And now look at the oceans because the oceans have actual problems. You know, local overfishing is a big problem that we still need to solve. And why is that? And I think it is because with the oceans, we rely on the actual natural processes, right? So ocean fish is replenishing at, the, at its natural rate. And if we increase our consumption, yes, we take out too many fish compared to what regrows naturally. But, you know, compared to the agricultural land, we have not yet learned how to sort of uh, perfect that piece of the planet to serve our needs. So in that sense, you can see what could go wrong theoretically, but what increasingly is possible, because I think the agricultural land is much more reflective of the modern human, because we have learned what works, what doesn't work, and we are perfecting our technology to serve our needs long term we are thinking strategically like what are the crops of the future how can we genetically modify crops to go even beyond what we can do now yeah i mean the uh, i think that's a really good example and i mean it's i think it's notable that really one of the differences that you're pointing out is the difference of a place where private property rights are relatively protected Mm -hmm. and a place in the oceans where we haven't really figured out how to define them effectively and the, if you actually look at the kind of case examples that early environmentalists or conservationists were pointing to in order to establish that, oh, we need the government to restrict production, it was almost always places where private property rights either weren't defined at all, such as on public woods uh, and forestry, and or it was places where they were not um, properly protected. And and so when you have a personal stake in something over the long term, then then you're much more likely to act in a way that is allows you to produce value over the long term versus this kind of depletion. Um, the, the other thing that just occurred to me is the like this. Uh, I mean, one way to think about environmentalism is that it's an apocalyptic movement or an apocalyptic ideology and like these are very common throughout history so i'm I, I the 
the tendency to see something in apocalyptic terms and then have a framework that kind of is coherent inside its own context, but doesn't make sense if you step back and start questioning it. This isn't unique. I mean, we've had these throughout history. So I just got a book on the history of apocalyptic thinking. So I'll be interested to look at that. But this is a case where like there, it's very plausible uh, unless you step back and actually look at well, how did people produce and under what arrangements did it work and under what arrangements didn't it and what have the actual results been because we have not seen the apocalypses emerge and of course the kind of you know trick with climate is that it's going to emerge at some ambiguous future point what's your first story Stefan? so this is a story that caught my eyes because i read the sort of original narrative like 10 years ago and the original narrative of the story goes like this. So a subsidiary of uh, Chevron uh, has been working in Ecuador and drilling oil there, and they have been running a particularly dirty um, operation. And environmentalists back then said, okay, they are creating this Amazon Chernobyl, right? So giving the locals cancer from you know dumping waste into the rivers, and causing all kinds of uh, environmental messes, and uh, when they were then they when they were uh, obligated to just clean up their mess, they didn't properly do so. And while the Ecuadorian um, government left them off the hook, uh, when they left, the people are still owed a lot of money. And so, some American attorneys and some capital investors came together, and they sort of in a heroic effort you know, took this big American oil company to the courts and, uh, you know, they won a court case in Ecuador. And based on that, they sued uh, in, in other countries, including in America, and uh, sort of held Chevron accountable and wanted, I think, $27 billion from them. And uh, so this is sort of the story where, you know, American attorneys with the power of, you know, American capitalism is cleaning up the mess that some reckless oil company was doing in South America. So now recently in the news was one of the leading uh, attorneys in this case, Stephen Donziger, and he is now barred from um, practicing law in uh, several districts in, in the United States. And uh, so... This, this was interesting to me because it totally reversed the story that was originally told. And the real story goes like this. In 2001, Chevron acquired Texaco Petroleum, which was a subsidiary that operated in uh, Ecuador until 1992. And uh, this smaller oil company was a minority partner in a joint venture with the Ecuadorian state petroleum company, PetroEcuador. And, you know, from the 1960s to the early 1990s, uh, they, you know, did the oil drilling business in this country. So, and then um, Texaco Petroleum went out of that deal in the early 1990s. And seeing that uh, there were some environmental problems with the operations there, you know, as you could expect, similar to today, maybe the Nigerian story, um, they went into a cleanup effort uh, and, um, you know, for for their part of the joint venture with the state petroleum 
company, they cleaned up their sites and uh, this was certified by the Ecuadorian uh, government and they were sort of left off the hook for future liabilities and could get the investment out of the country. And, you know, you would think, okay, they cleaned up their part of the mess properly and then, you know, went out. So this is a good thing to do. But then the problem came with these uh, American attorneys getting into, into this case and they it turned out that this uh, Ecuadorian court case that they won um, in the early 2000s was actually uh, achieved by very corrupt means, including a bribery to a judge and uh, something that violated the, the RICO law, the Racketeer Influence and Criminal Organizations Act, which is an act you know, against criminal organizations like the mafia uh, in the United States. And... Uh, this kind of thing was going on. So they, they used sort of the sort of uh, created false evidence and, you know, rigged the court case against Chevron to get this local Ecuadorian uh, judgment. And then they tried to extort money from Chevron. So what usually should have happened is, okay, we are suing you for something like $30 billion, but we would be okay with $10 billion if you, you don't drag that out. And back in the day, the story was, oh, Chevron is fighting this. They are double evil for fighting this in the courts because, you know, all these cancer patients in Ecuador are suffering while, while we are fighting this court case for decades. And so now it turns out, of course, that all of this was uh, sort of a rigged racketeer, uh, uh, reckoning scheme. And, and uh, one of the big problems I see here is that Okay, Chevron stood up, good for them. They were able to provide evidence that this was actually an extortion scheme and a criminal thing. And, you know, some of the people will be brought to justice, actually, which is a good thing. And, you know, it gives some face in the, in the U.S. court system here. But think about how many companies would have gone for settlement, you know? Oh, we don't want $30 billion in, in liability we would go for $10 billion and we will pay that even though we did nothing wrong. And even though, uh, you know, this criminal organization went after us to extort money from us. So the criminals would have gone away, right? And we don't know how, in yeah. how many cases this actually takes place. And well, also- then that's one of the things that bothers me about cases like this is just that there's such uh, an anti-business bias in the culture that like no matter how right you are, you just have this incredible risk. And then, you know, when you have these like insanely high, you know, potential damages you're on the hook for, right? you, you know, uh, you have every incentive to try to settle, which just encourages more of this. And so there's, I mean, there's really, if you want to be productive in energy, then there's not really a, like safe way to do it because no matter like how how much integrity you have like the the system is basically rigged against you in many ways yeah so i i would think of it in terms of the producer has this uphill battle he has all the liabilities and you know he has to take risks and they're real environmental risk with all kinds of activities of course this has to be factored in but this kind of behavior, you know, suing for enormous amounts of money, even based on nothing in terms of evidence, and in the wrong court district, this might still make you pay, right? 
And so, for example, if they were really interested in cleaning up the environmental mess and helping you know, people uh, get rid of the pollution, they should have gone against the state petroleum company in Ecuador, right? They were the bigger shareholder. They had the larger operations there, and they are still now responsible for the operations there and could still clean up these, these things. And, and they were actually the part of the joint venture that didn't do anything about the environmental impacts. So I don't know what what uh, sort of the the actual merits of that case is because the reports were actually also rigged uh, against Chevron. So we don't we don't know the exact truth. There might have been some you know waste issues, but you know you should go after the state petroleum uh, company and find out what's was really there. But of course, this was a criminal organization to start with. But I also want to mention that you know the original. Uh, storyline there that was uh, repeated by big media outlets. Even the New York Times had opinion pieces on this, you know, and, and giving Don Segar and, uh, and other attorneys, uh, you know, a um, uh, sort of outlet to tell their story. Uh, they will never be held responsible for that, right? So they don't, they make a big story out of this, you know, Amazon Chernobyl that Chevron created. But 10 years later, they don't run a giant story saying, oh, look, Sharon was a good guy here. And they were, you know, attacked by a criminal organization of attorneys. And uh, uh, they, are, they have, you know, been fighting for the moral thing and, and stood up to these bullies. And, uh, yeah, that, that's uh, a lot of people still get away and there's no cost to them being involved in this either directly or indirectly. Yeah, I mean... I I just think in general, there there needs to be a lot more thought about justice towards producers. Uh, a person who we've talked about on the show several times, Ankar Gatte, one of the earliest Power Hour guests, um, a former colleague of mine and Alex's, had a talk on this idea of justice for producers that's on YouTube, and it's really good. But one consequence of the injustice and one reason why I think it's possible and important to try to get people to care about these sort of injustices is like much of these costs get passed on to all of us. Like, so if you are like making it more expensive for the energy companies who provide all of our energy to function, then that is going to get passed on to each of us. And so, um, I think, it, you know, it's a real issue to be concerned about. So this is, uh, uh, there's a story out of Texas that is actually very much related to this idea of justice for the producers of energy. So oil line pipeline protesters who now interrupt operations or damage equipment in uh, the creation of pipelines could now face up, or, or if this legislation gets passed, could face up to 10 years in prison. And so this is legislation that's been uh, approved of by Texas lawmakers. I don't think it's been finalized into law. But uh, under this bill, protesters found guilty of halting service or delaying construction on an oil and natural gas pipeline could be charged with a third degree felony and um, be punished by up to 10 years of incarceration. And environmental groups, unsurprisingly, don't like this. And one of them, uh, a representative of the Sierra Club, called this an assault on free speech. And he said that this bill was never about safety and security. It was about silencing protesters trying to protect their water and land. And I think what Texas is doing is a good policy and calling this a violation of free speech. 
I mean, it's really a deliberate attempt to blur the line between speech and action. Like if it's it's speech, if on your own property or on public property, you say, oh, I don't like this. We shouldn't, you know, allow it. It's wrong. It's a dangerous like that's speech. But when you're actually talking about people blocking and sabotaging projects like that is a criminal action. That is vandalism. And the people doing it are thugs and saboteurs. They're violating the rights of oil and gas producers and of all of the people who choose to use and benefit from their product. And the um, the the only thing that I the, my only negative reaction is that I don't think this really addresses what the the most disturbing and problematic part of is that the worst blockers today aren't criminals, but so-called lawmakers and courts that allow every development, including pipeline developments, to either be totally taken off the table, as is often happening in places like New York, or it just becomes bogged down in so many delays that it costs 10 times as long and takes 10 times as long to build a pipeline as it should which doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned about making sure that it's done safely in a way that protects the rights of everybody involved, including the public, but that that is not what's motivating uh, people like the Sierra Club and these blockers. It's not an issue of protecting rights. It's that there's no development that they would be for. And they, and you know, it's bad enough to use the legal system, but when you actually turn to crime, to stop it, then it should be punished as a crime, not as, oh, well, these little idealists, you know, we'll just let them off with a slap in the wrist because that, I mean, that puts us all at the mercy of basically vigilantes. Yeah, right. That, that was that was also the, the word that went through my head. It's like the, this uh, injustice vigilantes. So there's a proper place for, you know, protesting or opposing something like a pipeline project and you can get it you know, court injunction if you think there's some endangerment going on. And, you know, if the story of this Keystone XL pipeline going on for like 11 years and counting, uh, you know, there's plenty of time to to get this settled. But of course, this is not free speech. If you are, you know, initiating violence against others, this is not free speech. It's not free speech if I break in Don's home to, you know, let his family know what I think. That's that's not free speech. Yeah, or if we just empty out the bank accounts of the Sierra Club and we stand in front of their offices and stop people from getting to their desks because we think, oh, they're going to violate our rights, which, I mean, in that case, we would actually be telling the truth. Um, like, no, that is not legitimate. Like, you have to, speech is speech. It's the communication of ideas. And once you go beyond the communication of ideas to actually blocking and preventing people from acting, you're not dealing with speech you're dealing with you're dealing in a different realm and that's where government does need to get involved and protect the rights that are actually being violated which in this case is the companies i'm i'm also curious so usually i would say this should already be covered by the justice system right because uh so this this seems to be a special law in texas for infrastructure damage of this type i'm i'm Okay, we are both not legal experts, I guess, but like, why isn't that already covered? Like, people who damage other people financially, you know, in this magnitude, should certainly be treated as felons. I think I don't. Um, I could. I might be getting this wrong because I haven't read the the legal the 
the bill closely or the context, but my understanding is that what's really going on is increasing the penalty on the basis of in of impacting critical infrastructure. Oh, okay. So that's the the extension. And and then there's a question of even how well that was, you know, the, the previous laws were being enforced in these cases. But um, I think that's part of what's uh, going on here. Mm-hmm. So which, uh, Stefan, what's your next story? This is a story about uh, BP and its uh, in investors' uh, propositions in, in its uh, annual meeting. And uh, reading the last headlines, I think the resolution actually went through. So the resolution was uh, initiated by some climate activist investors, and they uh, proposed to BP that the company should include in its reporting to which extent BP is moving to align its strategic goals with the Paris Climate Accords uh, and keeping the world average temperature below 2 degrees C by you know, decreasing CO2 emissions. And so in a recent article in the Financial Times, Helge Lund, chairman of BP, uh, explains why the company supports uh, aligning uh, their strategic goals with the, the Paris Accords and why they support this resolution, actually, which is unusual because other companies have fought this uh, kind of climate resolution and uh, didn't support it in, their, in the uh, investor vote. So I'll just read a couple of quotes from that Financial Times article. We recognize that the world is on an unsustainable path. We believe our strategy is consistent with Paris, and we welcome steps such as this resolution that are supportive of a faster transition to a low-carbon energy system. So BP, as an oil and gas company, is supporting a faster transition. Uh, into no carbon and no fossil fuels. Next quote, BP believes that the findings of climate scientists are real. As such, it follows that the world needs to move to net zero carbon emissions in the decades to come. The only uncertainty lies in the pace and nature of the energy transition. Yeah, that that quote is just, that, that quote is golden on so many levels. I don't think anybody who says their findings are not real. And I'd love that the only uncertainty lies in the pace like there's no uncertainty i mean if if you read the ipcc report like even if we disagree with it at many levels uh it's filled with all of the uncertainty at least it's filled with uh at least many of the uncertainties involved yeah so you could argue that okay given the context of the two degrees c um goal keeping the world temperature below that um you could say, well, yeah, so it somehow follows from the IPCC report, especially the, the latest um, report was, you know, called 1.5 degrees C uh, something. So it's a special report by the IPCC from, I think, this year. And if you look at that, you could argue, okay, so this is, they modeled several pathways of emissions uh, you know, how to keep temperatures below 2 degrees C if you believe the climate models. And um, yeah, but like just the formulation, findings of climate scientists, like which climate scientists? I mean, there are plenty of climate scientists who have serious doubts about, uh, you know, even even the temperature impact of the projected CO2 emissions. And But what I think what he means is really, 
we believe that the policy recommendations given on top of whatever the science says, that is what we believe in. And But he, he intentionally mixes these two. Like it's, oh, this is like a laboratory experiment that you can't, uh, you know, argue with. I can demonstrate certain things like gravity and so on. And on the other hand, the, this policy things like going to net zero carbon in the coming decades, that is one and the same. That's this basic argument. And this is, of course, a, a big fallacy. But uh, I, yeah, I'll go I mean, on with this. Incredibly sloppy. But yeah, definitely uh, keep going because <laughs> there's, I think, some gold coming up. Okay. So the next quote is, success will require new levels of collaboration across industry, consumers, and governments aided by technology improvements and well-designed government policy. So again, this, you know, emphasis on government control over the energy industry, global government control, and so on. Uh, and the next quote then, a company such as BP with responsibility for its shareholders' investments cannot be expected to get out alone in front of the transition. Arguably, we did so 20 years ago, in the era of Beyond Petroleum. So BP uh, branded itself as Beyond Petroleum at some point. And we invested heavily in renewables, developing sustainable businesses in wind and biofuels. But we also lost a lot of shareholder money as governments and society responded more slowly than we had anticipated. So BP was already there, had this big strategy, counting on governments forcing renewables, particularly wind and biofuels, down our throats as consumers. But that didn't work out. So now they, they say, well, we support uh, a global effort. Let everyone be forced to walk in lockstep. Yeah, I mean, the whole way that the energy transition is portrayed is that like, it's essentially, or at least in large part, just this market phenomenon of that fossil fuels are being outcompeted and therefore, when you know companies like BP invest in them, these are intelligent investments for the future. But this is an admission, at least a partial admission, that no, we need the transition to be government made because these were not intelligent and investments. And I mean, part of what's so perverse here is like to the extent that you do get policies that harm fossil fuel development, um, it's because you're going to have companies that. Uh, are pushing for policies that are suicidal to their core business. And I mean, one of the things to to take note of is just for all of these concessions, it's not that BP is getting much in return. I mean, they're not winning plaudits from the Greens, except for maybe like a half-hearted, oh yeah, every other oil and gas company should go this way until we get rid of them. Um, and the but just the sheer admission that uh like they've actually lost money betting on an energy transition like that is that uh, my jaw hit the floor when i saw that <laughs> yeah so and of course there are a lot of theories why that could be a good strategic move for bp and other big oil companies here so particularly uh people in the nuclear industry are often you know, saying, well, of course, BP loves wind and solar power, right? Because the more wind and solar power, the more reliable energy you need. And so the only way sort of providing that is the natural gas business of BP. So they, they absolutely love. And you know, to some extent in America, we are seeing that. Be, uh, not only BP, but all the, the 
utilities and big energy companies and so on, they are making money by natural gas, but also by renewables. So the renewables um, sort of provide government money to the to the companies. And then in addition, of course, they need reliable power generation, and that goes over the natural gas business. And then natural gas and, and wind and solar sort of have a sort of strategic connection. But even... Like, let's assume BP, uh, the BP leadership believes in all of this uh, to the core, and they really think that this transition needs to happen, and we need to lower CO2 levels to sort of net zero by 2050 or some similar goal. The question is, why does BP invest in wind and biofuels, the two things that very, very likely cannot be the real solution? Why doesn't it go to a full-scale nuclear approach, right? So this is a huge company, lots of capital to invest every year, lots of capital turnover every year. So they could go go ahead and say, oh, we want some innovative nuclear approach, make that happen, use our sort of political influence to, you know, allow nuclear to happen, to decriminalize this industry and then have an actual solution, right? Why aren't they going there? But, you know, apparently they, they since... 20 years ago, they are going for wind and biofuels, which have very large problems with scaling and with cost and so on. Yeah, I mean, there's this phenomenon. So, you know, to the extent that this is held out as, oh, look, they're secretly seeing kind of clever ways that they'll benefit from this. Being too clever is often a very short-sighted policy um, that, you know, you think of you think you're playing three dimensional chess, and what you're really doing is backing yourself into a long term corner. And I mean, you see this all the time. But the uh, the the what I actually see going on is that you have companies who, and sometimes for understandable reasons, because I mean they re- you know they are owned by shareholders and uh, they do face a lot of you know legal threats and things. So. Uh, I have a little bit of sympathy for big companies, not as much BP, which has really pioneered this, but of, well, look, let's just appease our attackers and like, you know, that will buy us some, uh, some love and at least some time. And what it, whereas if you actually were thinking long range, what you would have wanted to do 10 years ago is draw a line in the sand and, have a really coherent position on climate and really coherent policies that you think were good for you and good for the world. And, you know, if you had done that, I think you could have actually um, had a real fight, but instead it's now with everybody making, you know, basically uh, positioning themselves as we're going to be, you know, the greenest company and we're going to, you know, beat all our competitors to the race and in terms of endorsing restrictive policies on CO2 um, and, you know, championing green alternatives, um, you pull the rug out from under yourself. If you ever get to the point where you actually need to stand up for the freedom of oil and gas, you've sold out your ability to fight for that. And uh, I think that's kind of where we're headed right now. And so I find it worrisome. I think you know, some companies like Chevron, I think, are trying to carve out a more coherent pro oil and gas position. But the more that you get this appeasing from the leaders in the industry, the harder it is going to be uh, to maintain that. 
All right, let's turn to my next story. So California's, what we're really seeing is a trial balloon testing out how ready California is to ban gas-powered cars. So speaking at an air quality workshop in San Diego, Mary Nichols, who's head of the California Air Resources Board, she was had these prepared remarks that um, had her saying that in order to get tougher on pollution, that might mean, and she gives as examples, uh, as examples, tougher requirements for low carbon fuels, looking at tighter health protective regulations on California refineries, doubling down on our enforcement efforts on mobile and stationary sources, and that we might have to have an outright ban on internal combustion engines. And now when it came to actually delivering the remarks, she just stepped back and was more vague. And so um, she said that we might need tougher measures like fees, taxes, and bans on certain types of vehicles. And uh, one thing that I found interesting, aside from the fact that I'm very happy uh, once again to have left California, was that the focus in terms of people's reaction to this was completely on banning gas-powered cars. And yeah, that's bad. Um, I mean, it means forcing us to use more expensive, inferior technologies. But what was striking was so did the other elements on our list. Tougher requirements for low carbon fuels, tighter protections on restrictions on California refineries. All of that is stuff that is going to force us to use expensive, inferior technologies or take good technologies and make them more expensive. And I think the difference is that people have a much clearer sense of the fact that alternatives from cars are inferior, at least that they're more expensive and that uh, more than they do for electricity sources, let's say. And part of what that illustrates then is that um, the like it's really important to have clarity on the the state of alternatives or the state of replacements and you know, the, this idea that, oh, we have, like, we can replace cars and we can replace uh, fossil fuels, it makes it very, it, it provides cover for people who want to ban them. And, you know, one point that I'd made kind of week after week is that it's just revealing that the, like, greens have nothing positive to offer. It's not building superior alternatives. It's, you essentially have a movement that considers itself idealistic for just wanting to destroy things and stop us from using the best alternatives. Like this is their glowing proposals. We're good because we want to ban one of the most important creations of the 20th century. Yeah. So like, my thought on this is that there really is no, no plan in detail. So it's essentially like the green new deal legislative proposal, which is super vague because there is no real plan. There is no real alternative. And think about what would be necessary to have a positive approach, like, you know, keeping California's miles travel per capita in a year or even increasing that, you know, because we want progress or we want to travel more overall uh, and just shuffling that from fossil fuels, you know, California, of course, uses a lot of oil to electric vehicles. Now, let alone, you know, doing that in any short time frame, just think about California struggling right now, just, you know, importing a lot of electric power from other states 
And, you know, in every summer there could be, uh, you know, too little amount of water in the rivers to feed the hydro plants. And then you have a massive shortage and, you know, too much solar installations creating other problems with grid stability and so on. And now introduce all of the energy that is right now provided by fossil fuel derived, you know, fuels like gasoline and diesel from, ele- from the electric power system. This is, this is a massive cost increase. It will definitely, you know, create uh, problems keeping up with the actual service that we want, you know, miles traveled. And, uh, you know, even if, even if you would think that the electric vehicle production was feasible to do this kind of thing in a 10 or 20 year time frame, just the, the infrastructure demand and, you know, the new, new power plants that would be necessary to do that and so on. So this is, there is no actual plan. These are fantasies. And, and it's not a real solution to anything. And it's not human-centered. It's not like, oh, we want to, you know, solve the problem of travel for Californians and we want to do that in a better way. It's just, okay, we want to reduce CO2 by any means or nitrous oxide emissions by any means. And, you know, whatever tyrannical thing is necessary, if the people go hungry, so be it. That's, that's the goal. So, Stefan, before you get to your last story, I wanted to hear from you about um, there was uh, European Union elections and it got a lot of uh, media coverage because of the, you know, claimed as a green victory and the uh, illustrative of how concerned people are with climate. And as somebody who knows more about Europe than certainly I do and probably a lot of people in our audience, uh, what's your take on what's happened there? Yeah, so if you look at the headlines, it looks like uh, climate change policies are real, you know, election winner. But so when we look at reality, what did happen is that the Greens in Germany, you know, in terms of European elections, did some get got some gains. So they actually gained 19 seats over their 50 seats they won in 2014. And now they are at 69 seats out of 70, 751 in the European Parliament. And so much of that gain came from the German part of the election. So you have sort of elections organized by the different nations in the European Union. And so the Greens in Germany got over 20% of the vote. Um, so now they are at around 9% of the seats. So, but the real story would be, if you were an unbiased reporter, would be that actually sort of the center liberal and liberal in the sense of classical liberal uh, coalition, you know, you know, from various nation states in the European Parliament, they are actually uh, got m- many more seats than the the uh, Greens. And they are now, they won 40 seats and are now at 107 to 109. So I saw different ca- counts. You know, the election was just this weekend. So it's not, not maybe not a final settle on this, but they actually gained 40 seats. So double the seats that the Greens one, and they are actually the third largest group behind the conservatives, or sort of conservatives, uh, and the democratic socialists, which are classically the, the two leading fra- uh, factions in the European Parliament. So if, if you were 
if you would approach this and, oh, who has actually won this election, it would be, oh, yeah, so the conservatives lost and the, the democratic socialists lost, but they're still the biggest like blocks in this parliament. But a real winner would be sort of the centrist liberal. So you could argue that um, the green agenda was kind of rejected. And of course, on a country level, it's a totally different story. Greens actually lost in some countries. Most of the gains came from Germany and France, which, of course, account for a lot of the votes because of their population size. Yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of how like the growth of renewables is portrayed. It's like, you know, they're growing more rapidly than all the alternatives. And, and yeah. you, what you think is that they're overtaking everything. And what is, it's these marginal improvements, but given their kind of starting point, it's just not that impressive. Okay, uh, why don't you bring us to our final story? Yeah, so the Canadian province of Alberta might repeal its carbon tax with the newly elected government under Prime Minister Kenny. And, but this might actually give it a federal carbon tax that is imposed on provinces that don't do enough uh, on, the, on the carbon reduction scheme. And so the problem is that Alberta, under the, the previous government, introduced a carbon tax of 30, I think, Canadian dollars per ton, um, plus inflation. I think it might be a little more than $30 uh, today. But if that is repealed by the current Alberta government, it will actually trigger a federal $20 per ton carbon tax, which, you know, 20 is better than 30, but this is, this is still um, sort of a dead end. You can't really win you get a carbon tax either way. And what I found very curious about this case was the, the Prime Minister Kenney said that, oh yeah, we have a, have a good court case against this federal um, carbon tax because we still impose a levy on large emitters. So this is sort of uh, another argument that gives up the moral high ground against the, the uh, carbon tax by saying, oh yeah, we are already punishing our industry and we are uh, sort of doing something in terms of climate change. So we don't need this federal regulation imposed on us. And uh, other Canadian provinces lost court cases challenging the constitutionality of, of the federal carbon tax. And Prime Minister Kenny now thinks that he has a better case uh, by saying, oh yeah, we need to do something, but we are already doing enough. And of course, Alberta is Canada's biggest um, oil-producing um, province, with you know the oil sands being one of the largest oil deposits on the planet. But they faced a lot of difficulties recently, you know, through a lack of pipeline infrastructure in particular. Um, and you know, there's an ongoing fight uh, between the sort of anti-energy Trudeau federal government and the local governments in these various provinces that produce a lot of oil and gas. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the, like, if you were really thinking seriously that, okay, um, greenhouse gas emissions are a real threat to the globe and you were concerned with real solutions, one of the things you would, like, th this kind of squabbling over what's essentially symbolic. I mean, so th this is the context, right? The context is, so this is, I'm looking at a list of, uh, 2015 total carbon dioxide emissions um, in million metric tons by country. And so you have China 
with 9,040, the United States with just under 5,000, Canada's total is 549. And now we're dealing with a carbon tax is going to be $20 and, you know, it'll go up and everything. Like this is purely symbolic from a position of reducing CO2. What isn't symbolic though is is the cost borne by Canadians. It's that you are going to cause real suffering with no real benefits. And that's why I think if you're taking seriously that there needs to be a reduction of CO2, you you would either be concerned with how do we do it in an economic cost-effective way, and obviously our go-to starting point is nuclear, but the second is you'd think what global arrangement could actually be workable. And the the idea that, well, we're just going to make Canadian energy more expensive um, should strike people as really bizarre. And I, I don't know. Have you seen, have you looked into it all? Um, what the, uh, what the outlook seems to be or what the guesses are for the, the federal elections in October in Canada? No, I, I have not. Oh. Yeah. So, I mean, the, uh, you know, there's a real chance of fighting, I think not just in the courts, but as a matter of policy, because a lot of Canadians are upset because they get on some level, this is a complete sacrifice with no benefits to anyone. And they should uh, resent it. So, you know, I wish I wish them the best in fighting that. Any last thoughts, Stefan? Uh, no, I think the uh, synthesis is, uh, you know, the makers against the breakers, and the breakers are unfortunately uh, have an advantage because of how our system is set up and how you know the general public views these issues from pollution to to climate and so on. Yeah, well, that's what we're trying to change. That is it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, even though we have lost uh, Alex for the day, but he will be back next week. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me, Don Watkins, at don at industrialprogress.net. If you have any interest in a speech by Alex or anyone else from our team, we've got a growing lineup of great speakers at all different price points. So you can email me at dawnandindustrialprogress.net. And if you're interested in help with messaging, if you have a lot of high stakes messaging projects and you'd possibly like to be a client of ours, you can email me as well at dawnandindustrialprogress.net. In the meantime, the best thing you can do to support the show is subscribe to our newsletter. Just go to alexepsteinlist.com. And we will see you soon with another great issue of Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.